Hi, I'm Julie Bindle, and for this episode, we're going to Germany, to Berlin, to a conference organised by sex trade abolitionists, feminists who wish to see an end to prostitution. And it was to launch a report entitled Men Who Pay for Sex in Germany on what they teach us about the failure of legal prostitution. And this report was based on 96 lengthy interviews with punters in Germany. And, wow, wait till you hear what they have to say and the misogyny that drips from their mouths. But after you've heard the speech by Rachel, we have a conversation, me and her. We're old friends and old colleagues because I wanted to ask her a few things about what she said in that speech, which I'm sure you will agree is very powerful. I guess I should start off with a confession. I first came here, I, I had thought and, and said actually yesterday, it was about seven years ago. It wasn't, it was actually almost 10. I was thinking about this last night um, because it was in the spring of 2013. And uh, I came back a few times over the years and in around 2016, I think it was at the, the Kofka conference, um, I was having a conversation with, with women I know in the movement and I said, Germany is just, it's out of control to the point that I don't believe we're going to see anything significant happen in, in Germany for many years, if not decades, that country, I'm not going to use the language I use, but I'm sure you can finish the sentence for yourselves. Now, I believed that because I knew that what I was looking at here was commercial sexual violation on an industrial scale. Um, horrifying, creepy, frightening, um, despicable, and, and many other words besides. And I, I thought, and I remember saying at that dinner, that's going to have to spin so far out of control that the public will have slaughter happening on their streets in front of their eyes. I, I did not believe, and I said, frankly, to women, that what's happening now in Germany wasn't going to happen for a lot longer. And I was wrong. And my God, have I ever been so glad to be wrong in my life. So thank you all so much for your efforts in proving me wrong. They're much appreciated. You know, I have a few different things that I, I wanted to say today. Um, I've been asked to do a, a summary of the, of the conference. I'm not sure how much it needs to be summarised. We've all seen what's been said here today. We've all read the report, or will do. These men have validated everything that sex trade survivors have been saying for years and decades, for decades longer than I first came to this movement. I'm relieved, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm glad, all at the same time. I always knew that they knew what they were doing, a very great many of them. And then, of course, you had the idiots who'd lie to themselves. Maybe they felt that they needed to, they wanted to, they needed those liars to distance themselves from the reality of their own behavior and the inevitable guilt, maybe that would be on the other side of that. Maybe I'm holding on to a little bit of faith in humanity, you know, when I, I turn these explanations around, even now to myself in my own head. 
What I do know for sure, and this is in response to the question that was asked from the man here, I can't see him now, he said he was the head of the Rotary Club. His question was interesting to me because it tied into something I wanted to talk about anyway. Um, and it's what I call the bystander syndrome. Um, and I think that that's what we see. That's what we see always, all the time on this issue. And I'll tell you a little personal anecdote by way of illustrating the point. Um, I have a friend who I, who I like a lot and who I care about, a man um, some years older than I am, who I lost a good deal of respect for um, near the end of our fight in Ireland, just before we got the law. We were having a conversation and he was talking to me about a, a politician who was a personal friend of his. And this politician was railing against the Nordic model in public and in private. And he was describing to me a dinner that he'd had in his house in, in recent weeks. And this guy was there ranting and raving. And my friend said to me, and I knew, I knew what he was doing. I knew he was actually defending his right to buy sex. That's what he's got to be doing because it didn't make sense any other way. And I said to him, well, what did you do? And he said, Rachel, I didn't do anything because if I had to have said that to him, it would have caused an explosive row and I would have had to throw him out of my house. And I'm sitting looking into his face and he's saying this to me, you know? And I thought, I cannot feel the same way about you because you weren't prepared to just say what had to be said and to throw him the fuck out of your house. Um, and I apologize, but it makes me so angry with this bystander syndrome. Um, so the man was asking earlier today, where, how do we get the men to the table? Um, the men need to stop being bystanders. And this can only be led by men. Look, men and women make up two halves of the one whole, which is humanity itself. Women can't do the heavy lifting for everybody while we at the same time are mopping our own bloody wounds and trying to take care of our sisters and our children who've been violated and abused in this monstrous international institution. And it is far more an institution, by the way, than an industry. I don't like that language and I, I never have. Thank you very much. I wish this was read and in a, a larger quantity. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you, though. Um, so that's it, bystander syndrome. Sitting back, watching, caring little enough to do anything, even when you know. You know, I mean, I, I, I still kind of can't get over that. I can't get past that. And it, it, it did our, our friendship uh, an irreparable damage, you know? Um, I, I, I don't even know how to finish my own thoughts on that topic, except to say that men and women need each other. I don't give a damn whether you're gay, straight, or what you are. We all live on this earth together, and we need each other. We have to have functioning, healthy societies. We have to have a basic level of respect for each other. It's the most basic level res of respect imaginable to me 
to understand that another person is a full human being with thoughts and feelings and a body of their own, just like mine, that does not exist for people to get off on um, through their own sick, twisted, violation fantasies. What we need to understand, and this is something else I, I really want to say, I know I have 20 minutes when I when I'm two minutes off, just give me a, a nod so I don't, I don't forget anything. I'm not going to go through the list of all the survivors in the room that I appreciate because there would be the terrible um, certainty of me forgetting somebody and then I would feel awful. But I do want to say that I, I feel very deeply in, in my heart for Victoria and for Hanya who spoke here today. It was so, so important. Um, I, I would find it difficult to express the affection that I feel for women who are just out of prostitution a year or two, or even many years, and only just begin, beginning to come to terms with what that really meant for them. Because you can be out of prostitution 20 years before it hits you. I've met women, I've had those sort of conversations. Um, we have a whole world of processing to do. You know, we have got to find a way, and I've thought a lot about this recently for reasons that are too long to go into, but I've thought about the, uh, the side eyes, the hostility, the nasty comments, the harsh and ugly ways that we very often treat each other in this movement, and we need to be honest about that because we are not always kind to each other um, by any long stretch. And I'm going to put this to you with another little anecdote. I was in, um, I was in Paris late last year for the French release of my memoir. It's still mooching its way around the world slowly every few years. Um, and I, I had three days booked in a hotel and I was staying there with a really good friend of mine, Anna Zabnina from the, the European Network of Migrant Women. And so for the first two days, you know, we were having nice dinners, we were catching up, we hadn't seen each other for a couple of years with all the COVID stuff. And, um, and it was really lovely, but on the third night, she had to go to Brussels. And uh, I was left alone in the hotel room. And as corny as this sounds, because this is corny, and there's no two ways, you cannot remove the corniness from this story because it's just there, right? Um, I had me dinner and I drank some wine and I went back to the hotel room and I put on YouTube um, to listen to some music before I went to sleep. And on comes Adele's Easy, I think it's called, Easy On Me, you know that song? And I'm listening to the first bars of it and all of a sudden I heard myself, I saw myself in it. I, I was, the words really, really hit me. She was actually singing about a marriage that she had rushed into and, and how devastating it was for her to have to unravel that. But if you know that song and you know the words, you'll understand why that could be applicable to anything that happened when you were very young. Um, and the way that it hit me uh, was just like a Mack truck emotionally. All of a sudden I was sobbing in the room and I realised something. And it was that you never even tried to forgive yourself, you know? And I thought, you know, a lot about that. And I am not saying, by the way, let me be clear, that all of us survivors need to forgive ourselves. What I'm saying is that we need to heal ourselves 
And for me, I blamed myself for years, all of the years writing my book and doing this activism. And you know, you're 20 years on top of prostitution itself. And I had never even tried to say to myself, you are homeless and you are 15 years old. It was not your fault. And what I figured out now, that's why we hurt each other in this movement. That's why. Because we haven't ever, many of us, probably most, we've never really got to that place where we're being kind to ourselves. You have to learn how to be kind to yourself before you can extend that outwards. That's what I'm working on right now. And I'm saying all of this because I know that there are a good sprinkling of women in this room who've lived this issue. And um, I wanted to open up about that aspect of my own personal journey because I, I truly do believe it. It applies to us all. Um, so my thanks again to everybody who's put this together. And, um, and thank you again, Germany, for proving me wrong. And now I'm talking to Rachel live. Here she is. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Julie. You know, I was just listening to that again, and obviously I heard you talk live at the conference, and it was very moving, really powerful. And I know there were lots of tears and anger, and it, we we all felt different things, I'm sure, but some things really leapt out at me. And I just want to ask you about two or three points and one was about that sense of betrayal you felt when your former friend failed to to stand up against prostitution can you just talk a little bit about that well i think the most interesting word and in what you've just said julie is the word former because um he's still my friend um i've never raised this with him i've never discussed it i've never confronted him um, but nor have I actively um, engaged in the relationship, if you know what I mean. Mm. I haven't invited him around to my house. I haven't called him up asking, you know, what's the crack? I mean, uh, we would run into each other occasionally, and I still have a lot of fondness and affection for him and his partner. But these kind of things, like, they really damage a friendship, and maybe it's just simply a matter of cowardice on my part, that I've never raised it with him. But the reality for me, Julie, is that I think I would be um, just devastated in that conversation. I don't want to have that conversation. You know, I spoke to somebody, good friends of ours, actually, um, immediately after the conference, and she said to me, well, that means that there's a like a chink in his character, um, you know, like a crack in a glass. English is not her first language. And um, I found myself immediately leaping to his defense. And mm -hmm. I said, no, no, it's not a matter of character. You know, like we're all vulnerable to cowardice. I don't believe it's about his character. Um, and then I said, oh my God, I'm defending him. <laughs> I just realized. Yeah. Uh, there I was, defending him. Well, because we can't bear to think of those that we love, those that we respect. Couldn't see the basic fundamental principle of condemning something so 
so appalling, so abhorrent, and something that had actually happened to you personally. Well, this is it. And also I was, um, I was years deep in my activism when I had that conversation with him. I would have been about, I think, four or five years at least into my campaigning. So it wasn't as if this was something that could have just slid under his radar, you know. I just want everyone hearing this to think, did I hear something, Some someone either excusing prostitution or even joking about it, and I didn't actually call them to task on it? Because I think it's really important that we do, men and women, anyone who hasn't been directly affected by this, we have a responsibility to do that. Well, one of the really important questions that came from the floor, as you know, Julie was a man who was um, wanting to know how to get men in the room. Mm-hmm. We hadn't been asking ourselves that for years and decades. Um, and one of the things that is occurring to me now in this moment is that well, you don't really need as men to get men in the room because there's the majority of men <laughs> are outside the room and that's where you are too. So I would say to men, you know, men police each other in the way that they um, joke, banter, talk and generally communicate with each other. They set the boundaries for what's socially acceptable um, within their own groups and from each other. And I think that that's where men need to do the work. Um, in refusing to be bystanders. I agree. Uh, yeah, and, and just out and about in their general lives. Uh, which leads me to the, the next point that really stood out for me. You spoke, obviously, about the research, because that's largely what the event was about, the the research on German punters, friars, as they're called there. And they did, the, they did our work for us to some degree because the misogyny dripping from their mouths was just classic and it's what sex trade survivors and other abolitionists have been saying for decades so what really stood out for you in that research and why did you choose I suppose to talk about particular phrases or sentiments that the men expressed well the reason why um to let your listeners know I I gave a spontaneous thank you to the punters of Germany which was of course somewhat tongue-in-cheek (laughs) <laughs> um, was that I, I just felt um, that they had validated and, and corroborated everything that women had been saying for so, so long. Women had been saying for decades before I came to this movement. Um, and I felt like, you know, it, it needs to be acknowledged, the clear parallels between what we've always been saying and what they're finally saying. Um, in Germany, I mean, in particular, because this is not the first piece of punter research and this is not the first time that they've shown um, how how they really operate right, in yeah. the context of the sex trade. Um, but back to your, your question about um, was there something that jumped out in particular about the research? Um, you know, the... I, I had a little bit of involvement with the running schedule of the um, of the event and a few conversations with the lead organiser about what what that should look like. And one of the things that I asked her to do was to give the researchers more time on the stage because I really felt that uh, that's an unusual voice to hear from 
and it's an important voice. And I had this sort of um, uh, intuitive conviction that we were going to hear something unusual up on that stage. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, unusual to our understandings, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But it's a place we don't hear, and I really think we ought to hear more of them. Um, what they said, they talked about their secondary and even third hand trauma in conducting this research, because as you know, there were two women who actually conducted the interviews themselves, and there was a another woman whose job it was to collect the information that she was reading from the page. Mm-hmm. And even at, at her two steps removed distance, she felt traumatized, and I talked about this with her afterwards. Um, the words she'd had to read, um, the evidence of misogyny just dripping off those pages, yeah. page after page after page. And she said she wondered about how the women felt who had to sit front face and confronting these men across the table conducting this research. And her, her mind could barely even go to the point of wondering what the women were feeling who were actually used by them. Yeah. Um, so I think we need to put more more focus on that. And it's it's a really sad and brutal reality that the reason why the researchers shake the audience so deeply, and I don't mean that audience in particular, I mean any audience anywhere, is because the researchers are perceived as uh, civilians, ordinary women, normal women. Right. Yes, exactly. And I did some interviews of punters for the same big six country research project coordinated by Melissa Farley like this German punter research in 2009 and I'm not a sex trade survivor I haven't experienced it directly but I have experienced other forms of male violence but interviewing those men it it, it was it was very traumatic and and I was thinking my god how does it feel to have experienced it and to have to listen to this and delivered so coldly and so matter-of-factly. And, and I found that, and this is the, the kind of last thing that I want to ask you about, Rachel, is I suppose about the way in which years, decades after the carnage suffered in prostitution, that things can come back and hit you when you're least expecting it. And as I say, as someone who hasn't had that direct experience of prostitution, I thought I'd heard pretty much all there is to hear about the horrors of this. But I heard some stuff in Germany from the sex trade survivors in that country that I cannot get out of my head that is new horror, is new information. So you mentioned something about Paris and and about how you had that experience there of something coming back and, and hitting you decades later. Yeah, it was um, it was just the understanding, Julie, that I had looked at prostitution in every way that was conceivable to me, except for probably the most personally important way, which was just the understanding that it hadn't been my fault. You know, I'd, I'd never got to that point. And um, when it hit me, and the only thing that I regret, I think, about that uh, that speech in Berlin is that I didn't inject a bit of humour into it. 
because as we say here in Ireland, um, you have to laugh. And we also say that you can knock a laugh out of just about anything. And <laughs> I think that's really true. Well, then you have to um, actually doing the work we do, to be fair. Oh, you do. <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of like humour is like the abolitionist movement, uh, you know, Prozac. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously we're not going to go into detail here, but the things we've laughed about, I'm thinking in particular one very, very long flight to Australia. I mean, it would it would have people horrified, but we we know why we have to laugh about it. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I just say this. Um, there are waitresses and and bartenders and uh, you know, air hostesses and people we've come in contact with all around the world. Myself, yourself, and and the women of Space International, and. I'm sure that they are repeating those stories to this day <laughs> and beyond. Um, <laughs> I hope they are, because they're some of our finest. <laughs> There's no them, you know. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I can't believe that I got as emotional as I did and as raw as I did and never thought to inject a bit of humour into it, because it is actually funny um, when you look at it. <laughs> that I, I was faced with the, the fullness of um, what I need, needed to uncover um, in the context of having drunk a load of red wine in a French hotel room listening to an Adele song. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on. <laughs> I thought, oh, Jesus. But I think, like, we bounce back. There's a lot of resilience Um in the women I know. I was actually laughing about that at breakfast the following morning, thinking, my God, imagine putting those things together, red wine, Parisian hotel room, and a fucking Adele song, and you're bawling <laughs> your eyes out, having the the epiphany <laughs> of your life. Well, you know? quite frankly, the Parisian hotel rooms I've been in, where you can, you can turn off the light without getting out of bed, they're that small and grotty. Uh, I'd I'd be bawling my eyes out if I was in one right now. But um, <laughs> oh anyway. god, that's brilliant, Rachel. I'm really glad that we've had this talk, and thanks so much for for allowing me to to share your talk, your brilliant talk uh, from Germany, with with those that that listen to my Substack. And thanks for everything that you do. You too, Julie. Now that was Rachel Moran, and. I've learned everything that I know about prostitution and the global sex trade in general from women like Rachel. They are the experts and there's none finer than Rachel Moran. Thank you for listening. Until next time.